Hello, everyone. It's Joanna, and welcome to Sam Magazine. It's Joanna. <laughs> you know that. I have another, another short story from the same anthology I read from last week. This story was written by C.J. Papoutsis. It, like I said, it was in the same anthology, Blood on the Holly, which was produced by the Crime Writers of Canada. And today's story is titled Mother Always Kept a Gun. Now, this will be the last short story podcast for 2023. I'm starting up again the beginning of January, the first weekend in January. I will have a podcast for you. Okay, so let's let's get into it. Let's get into the story. So here we go. Mother Always Kept a Gun, written by C.J. Papoutsis. Wednesday afternoon, I was removing a black mole from Mrs. Bindorfer's chin, pixel by pixel, when the cowbell over the door rang and a tall, delicious-looking man stepped into my studio. His face reminded me why I'd taken up portrait photography and made my hands itch for a camera. Maxine Mandeville? My name sounded like music when he said it. Yes? Detective Al Rossi, Victoria City Police. He held out his badge. Do you live at 1720 Arbordale Circle? Not yet. Oh, crap. What now? My mother died last month in St. Damien's residence for senior ladies, where she'd lived for two years. She left me her house. I'd decided to renovate the upstairs bathroom and build an apartment in the basement for my daughter. Sylvia, at 24, was again between jobs and coming off her second bad marriage. My daughter and I are moving in on December 31st. There's a problem over there. He slipped his badge back into his pocket. You'll have to come to the police station. I looked from Detective Rosie to Mrs. Bindorfer's image on my computer screen. Oh, crap. I'm just trying to camouflage this mole in time for Christmas. Excuse me. I swung the screen around so he could see it. Every woman wants her portrait to be beautiful, even if she's 80 years old with wrinkles, warts, and a mustache like a bull seal. I caught a whiff of Alfred's sung 
as he leaned over to look at Mrs. Bindorfer's image on my screen. He grinned. This one's going to be a challenge. I swiveled the screen back and saved the file. Did Fred Digby nail his foot to the floor again? Fred's a carpenter who has been working on the house. According to Sylvia, who had been engaged to him briefly, he makes most of his money by suing people. And with the Christmas season bringing out his alcoholic tendency... No, Detective Rossi was pursuing my photo display. I'm afraid it's more serious than that. The workers found a skeleton in your basement. Don't you mean my closet? I switched off my computer and shrugged into my coat. I sniffed and checked for tissues and lozenges in the pocket. Basement. Skull's got a twenty-two caliber slug in it. We're talking about murder. Tis the season. Detective Rossi's cruiser was parked behind my Volkswagen bug. It started on the first try, and I followed him downtown to the police station. I had to wait while he found the file. Merry Christmas, said Martha Lane at the reception desk. We'd gone to high school together. Christmas sucks. I coughed and felt like a truck had parked on my chest. I'd caught a cold from shopping in the rain every night after work, buying gifts for people who didn't need anything. And now my throat was raw, my ears itched, and I sneezed until my eyeballs popped out of my head. Colds terrify me. Childhood asthma gave me a suffocation phobia that years of therapy haven't helped. Detective Rossi showed me to the interview room. Slumped on a hard metal chair, sipping corrosive brown liquid from a styrofoam cup, I saw my hopes for a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year melt like a snowman in Mexico. He explained that the workers had found the skeleton when they were laying pipes for the bathroom in Sylvia's apartment. The police had stopped work on the house until they could do a thorough search, identify the skeleton, and find out what he was doing in my mother's wine cellar. Nobody except those involved in the case were permitted access. Detective Rosie didn't think we'd be moving in any time soon. My renovation was turning into Satan's workshop. Hasn't anyone else noticed that Santa is Satan spelled inside out? Heading back to my apartment, I stopped at the pharmacy and selected an armload of cold remedies with enough combined strength to knock out a grizzly bear. A sneezing fit seized me as I reached the lineup at the cashier. I buried my face in an industrial-sized tissue. Bless you, said a cheerful woman with orange hair and gray roots, standing in front of me. Thanks. I'm naturally suspicious of people who are cheerful at a time when sensible creatures hibernate. Orange hair bleated, Merry Christmas, at me, and then it was my turn. The young cashier with Cam printed on his name tag looked at me like I was a threat to world health. I paid with my only credit card that wasn't maxed out. Merry Christmas. I hope you live, he said, stuffing my drugs into a bag. Smart ass. Back at ya, I said, and went into a coughing fit. Winter in Victoria is depressing. 
gray shrouds the city for weeks on end. Torrential rain beats us into submission, and numbing dampness penetrates our winter coats and boots. By the time I got into my apartment, the rain was freezing on the road. In the middle of the night, a scratchy sound woke me from my stupor. A light danced outside my second-story window. I pulled back the curtains. A fool, dressed like a cat burglar, straight out of the 60s, was perched in the magnolia tree, peering in my window. Somebody should have told him, large peeping toms don't look good in spandex. I grabbed the glass of water off my night table, opened the window, and winged it at his head. Sheet, he shouted. A branch snapped, and I heard a crackly splat as he hit the semi-frozen ground. I threw my coat over my pajamas, groped for my slippers, and punched 911 on my cell phone on the way downstairs. By the time I got outside, he was gone, but his fall from grace had attracted several other tenants who stood around shivering in their bathrobes and parkas. A rookie cop, who looked about 16, finally arrived. My visitor had left a significant bum print in the garden under the magnolia tree, but nothing else. The cop laughed when I explained the broken water glass and herded the spectators into the lobby for questioning. I returned to my apartment, popped another 12-hour cold capsule, and stayed awake listening to the old building creak and groan. Next morning, light snow was falling, and I felt like I'd charged headfirst into a stone wall. I started off with two shots of nasal spray, made coffee, and staggered down to the lobby for my newspaper. Miss Rendell, wearing a quilted housecoat and fuzzy slippers, had been in the group outside my window last night and was already in the lobby. She jabbed her finger at her newspaper and glared at me over her half-glasses. Such wicked goings-on these days. Have a nice day, I said and took my paper from the rack. A grainy photo of Mother's house was spread across the front page. The headline read, Workers discover skeleton in basement. Knowing Miss Rendell would be using the elevator, I sprinted up the stairs despite my fever and pounding headache and called Sylvia to warn her about the article, although she might be spared the Mandeville infamy since she'd be using her most recent married name, Angelopolis, which came with its own baggage. But in my opinion, baggage variety is a good thing. Don't sweat it, Mom, she told me. In a few days, something else will happen and everybody will forget about your skeleton. I wish I had her attitude. Our skeleton. You'll be living there too. And do you realize we'll be spending New Year's in a motel? Whatever. Don't worry, Mom. It won't be for long. I gotta run. Cam's picking me up for breakfast. Cam. The name rattled around in my drug-fogged brain. At least he was picking her up for breakfast. He wasn't already there. That was an improvement. I poured a giant mug of coffee and collapsed into my chair. Crap. What next?
I felt like death and stayed home to do the paperwork. Detective Rossi called. We arranged to meet Saturday morning at 10. He had been doing his homework, snooping in vital statistics, court records, motor vehicles. His handsome Roman nose had been everywhere that concerned my family. He probably knew more about me than I did. The snow was still falling, and the murder investigation was gathering speed. Like an avalanche, it would crush any remaining illusions I had about my family. Phone rang three times in the next half hour. Neighbors asking nosy questions about my house. I turned off the ringer. After eating a bowl of instant soup and organizing my accounts, I ended my day with a hot bath, more pills, and the old movie Dial M for Murder. Friday morning, the snow had turned to rain, a steady, annoying drizzle like a leaky faucet. I turned on the news. Sylvia was right. A car accident on the Malahat Highway had replaced my skeleton. After a day at home and with Christmas hanging over me, I needed to catch up. The phone was ringing when I arrived at my studio, and it didn't stop all day. Everyone wanted a portrait done by the woman with a skeleton in her basement. Before noon, I'd even turned down four party invitations. I was becoming a social butterfly, but I felt more like a social moth. Lunch was two hits of nasal spray and a throat lozenge at two o'clock. Mrs. Bindorfer's mole was history. She came to pick up her portrait and promised to recommend me to her sisters. At 6.30, I quit work and stopped on the way home for a burger that I couldn't taste, which was probably just as well. After a hot shower, I lined up my drugs, orange juice, and tissues on the coffee table, ready for another mindless evening of TV. The phone rang. Nobody. Just dead air. Then click. Twenty minutes later, the same thing. Dead air. Creepy. I dialed the telephone company to report a nuisance call, but when a mechanical voice directed me to press 1 to report a service problem, press 2 for information about your account, I hung up. Friggin' robots. The phone rang again. I waited. Twice. Three times. What the hell? Nobody could hurt me over the phone. I snatched up the receiver. What do you want? Congratulations, you have won a trip. Crap. I don't want a trip. I slammed the phone down. I wasn't going to wait around to provide amusement for phone scammers and stalkers. The situation called for affirmative action. Since fresh air usually helped my breathing, I'd go for a drive with my window open a crack. My mental condition had been shaky since Mom died. Having your mother's ashes in a plastic container in the closet does take getting used to. But one day, I found myself in front of the open closet, asking her if my butt looked too big in my new jeans. Since then, I've consulted her on major decisions, as well as what I should cook for dinner. I'd have to sprinkle her ashes somewhere, sometime. 
but it was still too soon. I wasn't ready to let her go yet. I brushed my hair, pulled on black pants and my burgundy sweater. A bit of makeup made me look less like a cadaver. Feeling better, I stood in front of the closet for Mum's approval. Her pearl earrings looked good with the outfit. I didn't plan my route, just an aimless drive to get me away from my apartment. Christmas is lonely at the best of times, but this year my two best friends had gone away for the holidays and everyone else I knew was either shopping or busy with family. The rain bounced off my windshield as I drove along Dallas Road. Nothing says depressing like driving around alone in the rain looking at Christmas lights. I ended up at Mother's house and saw the yellow crime scene tape flapping in the wind. Not so festive. Maybe next year. My mother always kept a gun in her lingerie drawer. A redwood handled Hopkins and Allen 22 caliber double action revolver. Lots of women her age did. They drank pink ladies, used black rhinestone studded cigarette holders, and wore lacy red garter belts too. When she was young, being a woman was serious business. Detective Rossi had mentioned Mom's gun, so I guess the police hadn't found it yet. Life would be much easier if they didn't. I'd pick up Mum's fur coat. It would be useful in this ugly weather, and scoop the gun. I parked two blocks away and, making sure nobody was around, followed the brick path at the side. The house key was on my chain, so I slipped in the back door. With all the curtains drawn, it was nearly pitch dark. Years of memories settled around me as I groped my way to Mom's bedroom. Her things would have to be sorted and given away, but I hadn't found the time or the emotional strength to deal with it yet. I switched on my pen light and pointed it down so it wouldn't attract attention from outside. I made my way to the closet. The coat was gone. I turned to leave and collided with a large, furry hulk. I opened my mouth to scream, but only a croak came out. Shut up, said a raspy voice. The hulk's breath was hot and wet on my cheek. He spun me around, twisting one arm behind me, and clamped his hand over my nose and mouth. My suffocation phobia kicked in. Panic seized me, and I chomped down on his hand. Bitch, he screamed, releasing me. He stumbled to the doorway to block my escape. I aimed my penlight in his face. Beady eyes glinted. He was covered in brown fur. Mother's coat! With a four-inch gap over his belly, the ham dangling around his thighs, and the sleeves just clearing his elbows, he looked like a giant rat who'd outgrown his fur. What the hell are you doing in my mother's coat? Sleeping. It's cold in here. I flashed the light in his face again. You're the, the, the large, the, the, the big, the pervert who was peeping in my window. I'm not large. I stuck out my chin and snorted. Okay, the full-figured pervert. Who the heck are you? I'm your brother. Ooh, try again, furball.
You never heard of me? What's to hear? Get out, or I'll make so much noise every cop in Victoria will come running. He held up his hands like a zealous crossing guard. I'm not gonna hurt you. I sidestepped to the dresser and eased open Mum's lingerie drawer. I felt for the gun. Whiffs of opium, Mum's signature scent, rose up from the lace and silk. But no gun. Are you looking for this? He patted his furry pocket. I don't think it's loaded. Great. This overstuffed rat says he's my brother and he's got mother's gun. All I've got is a pen light and a red lacy garter belt. He smiled. Don't worry, I don't usually kill people. Good. I took a deep breath. How did you manage to break in with cops everywhere? There were no cops. I got here Monday. The bones showed up Wednesday, remember? And I didn't need to break in. The key was under that stupid little statue on the patio. Mother had always hidden a spare key under the garden gnome. I'd forgotten about that. So you've been pawing through Mother's things since Monday? Yeah. I was hoping for money. But guns are good. I straightened and looked him in the eye. Give me the gun. It's mine. He did. And it shocked the heck out of me. I held the weapon. It's not enough to have a goddamn skeleton buried in my basement. Now there's a brown, furry rodent sleeping in my mother's bedroom. He shrugged and sat down on the bed. Some people have it all. His attitude ticked me off. And take off mother's fur coat. Stop shining that light in my eyes. He took off the coat and threw it down on the bed and put his hands in the pocket of his sweatshirt. This sorry creature wasn't what I had in mind when I'd asked Santa for a brother, but he piqued my curiosity. What are you doing here? If you'd shut up for one stinking minute, I tell ya. He turned to face me. I came back for my share. The bitch owes me, or I guess you do now. Part of me just wanted to get away from this creep, but I was curious to hear his story. Still, I'd feel more comfortable hearing it in a public place with better lighting. Listen, I said, a crime scene isn't the best place for a family reunion. Let's go and talk somewhere else. I slipped the fur coat over my jacket, shoved the gun in the pocket, and we headed for the Starbucks on the corner. I ordered a tall latte, and he ordered a grande americano. We sat at a table in the back. I watched him flick the sugar packet three times with his index finger before he ripped it open. Just like Mom. What if he really was my brother? What's your name? Vincent Van Cousy. Okay, start talking. I sipped my latte. From the beginning. He leaned back in his chair. Our parents were always fighting. One night when I was six, they had a real brawl and dad took off. The next morning, the bitch's face was black and blue. I asked where dad was and she said he'd gone out. 
Next day, she was digging up the dirt floor of the wine cellar. I asked her what she was doing, and she said I should shut up and mind my own business. I kept asking. She kept telling me I'd made the whole thing up. Finally, she took me to a shrink for behavior problems. When I set a fire at school, she said I was unmanageable and put me up for adoption. Was he telling the truth? I couldn't imagine Mother doing that. Or could I? So you think she buried your father in the wine cellar? Our father. Tony Van Coonsie. Excuse me, my father was Max Mandeville. Vincent shook his head and took a gulp of coffee. I was five when you were born. Your real name was Maria Van Coonsie. I felt like I'd been kicked in the stomach by an elephant. This was like a bad B-movie. But your name's Vancouzi and mine's Mandeville. Mandeville had money, but Mother couldn't marry him without digging up Tony to prove he was dead. So she changed your last name to Mandeville and your first name to Maxine. Nobody asked questions. That's bizarre. How the heck do you know all this? I know people, and I've done a lot of time, he admitted. Jails have computers. Staff are always willing to help out. One hand washes the other. I was fading. I checked my watch. It was 10.30, and my cold medication was wearing off. I didn't like what this guy had told me. But what if it was true? I checked Vincent into the Traveler's Lodge on Douglas Street and we agreed to meet in the coffee shop at 8.30 for breakfast. My hands were shaking so badly I could hardly get my key in the ignition, and I drove past my apartment driveway twice before I found it. This day was way hell and beyond any previous weirdness, and trust me, I've had some weird days. After two more hits of nasal spray and a nighttime cold pill, I fell into bed at 11.30, but I couldn't sleep. My mother might be a murderer. A nut bar who peeps in windows might be my brother. And I had an unregistered, concealed weapon in my pocket. This was no way to earn points with delicious Detective Rossi. I got up and dropped the gun into a Tupperware container and stuffed it in the freezer. Nighttime is when I do my serious thinking. Eccentricity doesn't merely exist in our family. It's rampant. My daughter, Sylvia, can't hold on to a job long enough to qualify for unemployment benefits. And her marriages don't last long enough to provide divorce settlements. Mother went through two husbands, the first of which, according to Vincent, was Boney Tony in the basement. Then Max who lasted until a plane crash, not mother, finished him off. I'd abdicated my marriage after a year because of Heidi Lafette, who ran a lingerie shop based on the theory that most people, including my husband, looked good in black lace underwear. And now, Vincent. When I was a child, I begged mom for a brother or sister, and every Christmas, I pleaded with Santa to bring me one. Mother cautioned me to be careful what I wished for. 
I hated to admit it. But Vincent certainly seemed loopy enough to be my brother. At 7.30, I woke up only mildly fogged. I found a big windbreaker that had belonged to my ex-husband and shoved it in a bag and was halfway to town when I realized I hadn't had to use my nasal spray or take a pill. Vincent was waiting for me in the coffee shop behind a fortress of eggs, sausages, and pancakes. The waitress filled our coffee cups and took my order for a bagel. Hope you don't mind, said Vincent. I already ordered. No problem. I fished the windbreaker out of the bag. You might be able to use this. You didn't have to do that. You're welcome. The waitress plopped my plate in front of me. I spread cream cheese and jam on my bagel while he sliced sausages with the side of his fork. Most people use a knife for that, I said. Never got the hang of it. They don't let us use them in the joint. Right. I was having breakfast with a criminal. What happened after Mum shipped you off? He continued cutting his sausages. Nobody wanted to adopt an eight-year-old problem child, so I got passed from one foster home to another, until I quit school and took up crime. What was it like in the joint? I really learned to hate. Every night before going to sleep, Vincent used to go over all the bad things that ever happened to him to keep the hate and anger alive. He vowed to come back and set things straight. But time passed. Life got in the way. And now mother was gone. Yeah, sometimes life sucks. I took a slug of my coffee. I lived in a bunch of group homes in Vancouver, he said, through a mouthful of pancakes. Then they shipped me back here when I was ten. I used to ride my bike to the park across from your house and watch you. My bagel tasted dry, in spite of the cream cheese and jam I'd piled on it. I'd had an older brother I didn't know about, and he'd been watching me from across the street. Creepy. How do I know you're not lying? Do you have any ID? Something with a photo? Vincent put down his fork and reached for his wallet. Here's my probation conditions. ID card, birth certificate, social insurance card. He laughed. Never learned to drive and never needed a passport. I've got an appointment with Detective Rossi this morning. Would you come with me and tell him what you've told me? He choked on his coffee. You mean go to a police station without being arrested? Yeah. And if your story can be verified, then I'll make legal provisions for you. He held up his hands. I don't want no legal provision. That's what always lands me in the joint. Will you at least tell the police what you remember and what you found out? Then I can get the renovation crew back to work and I might not have to move to a motel. Some people would be happy to live in a motel. Not me. Okay. What time? 10. I looked at my watch. It was 9.30. The waitress refilled our cups. Police station is only a few blocks away. I paid the bill. Vincent fidgeted beside me in the car like a St. Bernard on his way to the vet. Fortunately, 
cheerful Martha Lane wasn't at the reception desk. So I didn't have to introduce Vincent or fend off any saccharine Christmas greetings. Detective Rossi looked good enough to eat in a navy blue sports jacket and gray pants. Good morning, he said. I'll get the file and be right with you. He pointed to interview room two. I gotta go to the camp, said Vincent. I'll be right there. Interview room two was hospital green and had no windows. The metal light fixture was encased in a wire cage. A lone box of tissues sat on the wonky metal table. Five minutes passed. Each one felt like a week. Detective Rossi came in with a file and dropped it on the table. Will your friend be joining us? I don't think so. Detective Rossi closed the door, sat across from me, and opened the file. Here's what we've discovered. Regarding the skeleton, we've identified him through dental and medical records as Tony Vancusi. He had some unusual dental work as well as jaw knee and leg fractures. Tony Vancusi owned a strip club in Vancouver. He showed me a Vancouver Sun picture of Tony and four women standing in front of the smiling Fox Cabaret. Here's another picture, he said. It was Tony with his arm around a young woman in a cinnamon-colored fox costume. Mother. My chest tightened and I broke out in a cold sweat and slid off my chair. I opened my eyes and saw Detective Rossi's face inches from mine. You fainted, he said, lifting my head and holding a glass of water to my lips. My apologies. I thought you knew about your family. He helped me up and back onto my chair. The room was spinning like I had too much wine, but without the fun. We could continue when you feel better, he said. I groaned. Let's get it over with. I drank some more water. He placed a few mug shots of Tony and my mother in front of me. I looked for family resemblances. Tony and me? Nothing, thankfully. I looked like mother. Tony and Vincent? A little. Something about their mouths. Vincent and my mother? Maybe their eyes? Vincent and me? Nothing. Detective Rossi's voice guided me back to reality. The club was raided many times during its five-year career, he continued. After it closed, Tony put Lily and the girls out to work the streets. At least Detective Rossi didn't use the word hooker when discussing my mother. Tony had his fingers in a lot of pies, and made big money selling drugs. He and Lily moved to Victoria, and he bought the house on Arbordale Circle. My house, I said. Yes. Tony invested in some legitimate businesses, several laundromats, and a dry cleaning franchise that did well in the early 70s, and became the king of money laundering, I said. Detective Rossi smiled. You could say that. He shuffled through more paper. A marriage certificate for Lily and Tony. A birth certificate for Vincent and Maria. 
Did you know you had a brother, Ms. Mandeville? I grew up as an only child. I didn't lie. Lying to the police is like lying to God. You go to hell for that. Detective Rossi dug out more papers. After Tony disappeared, Lily had problems with Vincent. He was diagnosed as unmanageable by several psychologists after he set fire to his school when he was six, and Lily gave him up for adoption. About a year later, Max Mandeville moved in with Lily, but they didn't marry. He placed certificates of change of name in front of me and used his pen as a pointer. I grabbed the glass and chugged the rest of the water. I reached for a tissue, wiped my eyes, and blew my nose. I thought Max Mandeville was my father. Detective Rossi placed everything back in the folder and closed it. His shoes squeaked when he stood up. Thank you for coming in. I know this has been difficult for you. He walked me to the door and shook my hand. His touch was strong but gentle. You can finish the renovations and move into the house as you planned. Thanks. You said Tony had been shot. Any idea by whom? We didn't find a gun. We'll keep you informed. Thanks, and since you picked me up off the floor, you can call me Maxie. He winked. I'm sure he did. And flashed his wonderful smile as I left. I drove to my studio. The message light flashed in that annoying way that makes me pick up the phone before doing anything else. The first message was from Fred Digby, the carpenter. I'm gonna have to take another job. Can't wait forever for the cops to finish with your place. Good riddance, I thought. The next was Sylvia. Mom, where are you? Have you got the turkey? Can I invite Cam for Christmas dinner? His family lives in Toronto. Get back to me. Crap. I long to skip the whole turkey shtick. Christmas always starts with my hand in a yellow rubber glove up a turkey's butt. I booted up my computer. Three portraits to touch up and print off by the end of the day. These women all wanted to look like Ginger Rogers. But the best I could do was Miss Marple. The phone rang. What now? It was Sylvia. Where have you been? It's Christmas tomorrow. Did you get a turkey? I tried to sound cheerful. At the police station? No, I didn't get a turkey. What about Chinese? Sylvia still used her whiny little girl voice when she wanted something. Please, Mom. I've invited Cam. He wants to meet you. I bet. Another short-term Romeo. Okay, I'm almost done here. I'll pick up a roadkill seagull on my way home. Thanks, Mom. I love you. Some things never change. I finished the portraits and put them in frames. The old lady showed up, paid, and left with the lightness of step I could only dream about. Insanity ruled in the supermarket. Shopping carts should be registered weapons. I managed to snag a fresh turkey along with nasal spray and rubber gloves, and body-checked my way to the cashier. 
I was too tired to bother cooking. I'd get enough of that tomorrow. Instead, I slipped, so I married an axe murderer into the VCR. The intercom woke me. It couldn't be Vincent. He'd be tapping on my window. It was Sylvia. What brings you here so early? It's not early, Mom. It's 9.30 already. We're cooking Christmas dinner, remember? She made the stuffing, and I gloved up and did the turkey butt thing. I filled her in about Vincent, Tony, Mom, and Max while we prepped the vegetables. She didn't even flinch. Family is family. Did you invite Vincent for dinner? Sylvia asked. No. I, I never got the chance. He took off to the bathroom at the police station and never came back. Sylvia peeled the potatoes. Poor guy. I bet he's huddled in a bus shelter or under a bridge. He's not a troll. He can go to the Sally Ann. I was still mad at him, but secretly hoped he might show up. The day passed quickly. We cleaned the apartment and took turns basting the turkey. At four o'clock, the intercom rang. Cam turned out to be the smartass from the pharmacy. He appeared with a bottle of wine and a huge poinsettia. I hate poinsettias. They always die. I thanked him anyway. He looked at me and grinned. Hey, you survived. Merry Christmas. I laughed. Back at ya. Our turkey tasted good, and I probably drank too much wine. We talked about the house renovations, and I mentioned that Fred Digby had quit. Cam put down his fork. I know a great carpenter who's just finished a job and looking for work. I gave Cam one of my business cards. Wonderful. Have him call me. Dessert was a tin of fruit cocktail with ice cream dumped over it. Nobody complained. Cam and Sylvia left around nine o'clock with much merry Christmasing. I'd refused their offer to help with the dishes. I loved the soothing feeling of hot water on my hands. At ten o'clock, Vincent called. I felt like throwing the phone at the wall. You bastard. You took off yesterday. Sorry about that. I hate cop shops. It's the smell. If you're interested, Detective Rossi confirmed everything you told me with copies of legal documents and newspaper clippings. Vincent didn't answer. I waited a few seconds. Are you still there? Yeah. What about the gun? He started coughing. It's in my freezer. Are you getting a cold? Why don't you come over? It's Christmas. Can't. I'm on the ferry. I've got pills. Might have a job on a fish boat. That's good. Where can I reach you about the house and everything? I don't know. I'll call sometime. Is that it? Yeah. I'll think about you when I sneeze. Merry Christmas, Maxie. He had to be my brother. As soon as I put down the phone, it rang again, and the velvet tones of Detective Rossi's voice caressed my ear. Merry Christmas, Ms. Uh, Maxie. I'm calling to check up on you. Yesterday was pretty rough. Yeah, but I'm okay now. It's a strange time to call, but I was wondering if you'd like to go for coffee. 
sure some Christmas wishes do come true. Not tonight. Had I sounded too anxious? Desperate, maybe? Then he added, I'm working tonight, so the family guys can have Christmas off. What about tomorrow? Great. I'll call you when I get off work. Merry Christmas, Detective Rossi. Ow. It's Ow. I picked you up off the floor, remember? What a rush. I poured more wine, marched into the bedroom, and opened the closet door. Well, Mom, what do you have to say for yourself? I waited. Nothing. Why didn't you tell me about Vincent, or that Max wasn't my father? You always loved to dance, but a stripper? And about that gun? Did you kill Boney Tony and bury him in the basement? And how could you give your own son away? I waited again. No comment. I looked up at the plastic container on the shelf and pictured Mother sitting there, legs crossed, nails painted red, cigarette in her black rhinestone-studded holder, blowing smoke in my face, saying, Darling, we do what we must. I raised my glass in a mock toast. Merry Christmas, Mom. Tomorrow, you're going to the beach. I'll miss the old broad. The end. There is Mother Always Kept a Gun, written by C.J. Papoutsis. I hope you enjoyed that story. I had a fun time reading it. And given this is going to be the last podcast for 2023, I wish everyone a Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year, a Happy Holidays, stay safe, have hugs, and uh, just take care of yourselves. Okay, bye-bye.